0: Thank you. Yeah. Good to be with you. Um, I was just thinking, I love that first set, Matt. Those are good songs. And uh, you ever had that question posed to you, if you could only bring, um, I don't know, one book onto a deserted island, which one would you bring? And as a Christian, of course, the answer always has to be the Bible, and that's fine. It should be probably, but that's why the Christian should always be asked if you had two books you were going to bring onto the island, what would it be? So you could say, well, the Bible, and then another one. If there was only one hymn you could bring with you and you had to lose your memory for all the others, which would it be? I don't know, for me, hearing in Christ alone once again, uh, that would be near the top of that list. So we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel today. Back in Matthew's Gospel, I should say, chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. So you can uh, follow along in your Bibles, if you'd like, uh, or one of the Bibles from the pew racks in front of you, or on the screen behind me in a moment as well. And we'll just jump in and read this passage and then begin unpacking it here today. Matthew 14, starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, The daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and they told Jesus. So before we jump headlong into our verses from chapter 14 today, I just want to say a couple things up front, kind of step back for a moment, try to be as objective as we can here and thinking freshly through this passage. First thing, this is a tragic passage. As I look around, most of you I know, and you call Tara home, and you are followers of Jesus. If you're hearing this for the first time, you probably are appalled, rightly so. If you're hearing this for the thousandth time, if you grew up in church like me, then you may easily just take it for granted and treat it as just a story. But it's not just a story. This is a real person. Not even just that he's a real person, but he's someone of whom Jesus said that no one greater has been born of women. John the Baptist I'm referring to here who tragically and in an unjust way lost his life. So let that sink in. One of the greatest human beings to have walked the earth, integral in not just Israel's history, but the history of the world as being the one who ushered in the presence of the Messiah. Human, just like you and I, not superhuman, served faithfully and lost his life like this. It's a tragedy. Okay, the second thing that I want to say is uh, there is this thing called hermeneutics. It means how we understand the Bible or the art of and science of interpretation. And I want to give you guys just a brief uh, tool of hermeneutics to consider when it comes to you reading your own Bibles. And that is this, how much scripture you have in view at any one time will help determine its meaning how big of a text or passage of scripture, how many paragraphs of scripture you have in view at any one time will help determine the author's intent and what God is wanting to teach you, okay? So, here's why I say that. If we take into view our passage from 2 weeks ago where Madison spoke on the end of chapter 13 verses 53 through 58 where Jesus was back in his hometown of Nazareth and he's trying to preach the gospel of the kingdom to to them. And they just can't take him seriously because they know him too well, they think. All right? So if we take that passage into view as well as our passage today, so that broader context, we're zooming out a little bit here. Now we have two back-to-back examples of prophets who are being dishonored. That isn't coincidence, okay? If you've read that before and you've thought to yourself, huh, two different important figures in Israel's history, John and Jesus, both being dishonored, you would actually be picking up on something that Matthew wants you to pick up on, okay? And so there are two two things we can draw as conclusions from Matthew having positioned these accounts back to back. Number one, on a literary level, just meaning a a method of writing, a tool of how he's designing his letter, Matthew is using the tool of foreshadowing. Okay? He's butting up, juxtaposing Jesus' dishonor with John the Baptist's dishe- beheading to give you a preview and to foreshadow the inevitable fate that is going to come upon the Son of Man, Jesus. Um, and then there's a second thing, too, that we can draw. This has more to do with a principle that applies to you and I as we look at these two dis- uh, two faithful, um, uh, faithful instruments of the Lord, of God, And that is this, Matthew is saying, as a Christian, you can't escape dishonor. As a faithful Christian in particular, you can't escape dishonor. It reminds me of what Jesus says in John 15, 20, when he says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And I think Matthew is wanting to prepare his readers. Remember, he is writing to the church, the early church. For this inevitable faith of their own, that if they are faithfully following after the Lord, that they too will face various kinds of dishonor. Okay, so that's a conclusion that you'd probably only draw if you step back and see these two stories back to back. But now we're going to zoom in more closely on chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, where it seems that what Matthew is trying to do and what the Lord wants us to see is this incredible contrast between these two human beings, these two figures of John the Baptist and Herod the Tetrarch. If we were to sum it up in a big idea, here's what I would say for um, our passage today. The faithful believer will live by truth, which brings life. But the faithless will always take the path of least resistance, which brings death. Right? The faithful believer will live by truth, which brings life. The faithless will always take the path of least least resistance, which brings death. Now, you may be hearing that, and if you're being critical, appropriately so, you may be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute. If we're talking about John the Baptist and Herod here, well, the the faithful one, John, dies. And the faithless one who took the path of least resistance is Herod, and he just seems to get away with it. Okay? So, on one level... Yes, that, that is very true, that there, there is something that feels off about this big idea. But on another level, the most important level, in an ultimate sense, there is more than meets the eye here that we need to see together this morning. Okay, so let's now unpack this big idea, but do so in reverse order. Starting off with talking about how the faithless will always take that path of least resistance, which brings death. And in order to do that, we have to do a deep dive into the person of Herod. Um, And that's appropriate because if you look at uh, the amount of time and attention that's given in this passage, the majority of it is to Herod and to his actions and to his words. So God has something to say to us this morning through Herod. So here's one thing I would say up front. I would say that Herod could be seen as the poster child for post-modernity, all right? If you understand what, anything about what a postmodern modern uh, mindset and worldview is, it could simply be boiled down to this. As long as it feels good, it must be good, all right? Post-modernity is a very—is um, uh, a mindset or worldview that's very relative, What's good for you may be good for you, but not for me, and vice versa. It's very subjective. If there's one thing that's objective, it's whatever it is that makes the most sense to you. That's the objective piece of a postmodern worldview. And the criteria basically is whatever your own desires are, whatever your own inclinations are towards what feels good and right, that must be what is true. That is the postmodern mindset that we live within today in our own culture. And it's an amazing lie, because a lot of the time, what is wrong feels right, at least at first. The Proverbs of the Bible are a, an amazing um, layer-peeler-backer back, of the human heart, Okay? Because what they are is they present to you insight into who we are as human beings from God's perspective, which is objective. Here are a couple of different Proverbs that speak to this reality of the deceptive nature of sin being what feels right and good, but ultimately ends in destruction. For example, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 17, we're told, Bread gained by deceit or stolen bread, as other translations will put it, is sweet to a man. But afterwards, his mouth will be full of gravel. Like, who of us cannot attest to the allure of sin Um, and how honestly pleasurable it can feel in the moment, and yet also after the fact that, that the experience is like having a mouth full of gravel, which is basically a promise of regret. I can't think of a time, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, where I consciously was aware that I had sinned and I didn't come to regret it. Th- that's what this proverb is telling us and trying to warn us to steer us back onto the path of trusting God even when we think something else is going to be right because it feels better or more comfortable. Another proverb that is trying to warn us in the same way is Proverbs 14, 12, which says that there is a way that seems right to a man... But its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right, but that way is deceptive. It actually leads to death and destruction in the end. See, guys, left without some sort of objective truth to otherwise inform us, we could easily assume the postmodern mindset is the right one, even if you wouldn't call it that. And the consequences that you experience may not come for months, years, even not until your dying breath. And so the only way to be able to avoid that path is to recognize that there is objective truth. So how was Herod, the poster child for uh, post-modernity, how is he the poster child for this worldview? Well, it might not be obvious at first, so let me unpack it a little bit by going through with you some of the history surrounding this guy and what we know of him, especially from our text today, but even from a couple of um, extra-biblical historical sources. So we're going to look at Herod now. This is where we'll kind of do our deep dive with him. First of all, let me just clarify that this is not the Herod that we just spent time thinking about soberly or somberly perhaps at Christmas time. Herod the Great is that Herod. He's the dad of this Herod, um, and he was a monster, okay? Not that this guy wasn't when you look at what just happened in this passage, but Herod the Great was an evil, evil man. He's the one, of course, who was responsible for what is known as the slaughter of the innocents, Right, the killing of all of the sons two years and under in Bethlehem when Mary and Joseph went there for the census with the Christ child and Herod the Great heard about this child and, and felt that his throne was threatened. So his response and solution to that was just kill all the babies that possibly could be the Christ child and then his power would be retained. That, that was this guy's dad, okay? This guy, in fact, was so vicious that the Caesar at the time, Caesar Augustus, by the way, not out of fear of Herod, but more of just a comment on who this guy was, said, I'd rather be his pig than his son. The reason why he said that was because he was responsible for killing multiple of his sons out of his paranoia for the, the power of his throne being threatened. And because on another level, to some degree, he actually abided by Jewish law so long as it was politically beneficial. One of the things he did was actually stayed away from pigs. Okay, but he did that as a matter of convenience wherever wherever it served his political purposes. And he was actually rather syncretistic, meaning he kind of blended different religions. So he took some of what worked for him for Judaism, especially insofar as it benefited him politically. And then he also worshipped the gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon. Um, And that is filled with all kinds of superstition, which I mention that only because you're going to actually see that trickle down into his son and his son's response to John, to Jesus, actually, in our passage today. So that's Herod the Great. His son, the one in view in this passage, is Herod Antipas, is his name. And he's referred to here as a tetrarch. Here's what that means. He's ruler of a quarter. So when Herod the Great died, he actually took his kingdom. He divided it up into four parts, and he gave it to uh, different family members. Herod isn't a first name. Herod is just a family name, right? Antipas was actually his name, and Antipas was one of the family members, given a quarter of Herod the Great's kingdom. Herod Antipas was more of a politician than his father. Uh, He was less ruthless. In fact, he was known to have had a fairly peaceful reign until toward the end, which we'll talk about later. He was a builder. He actually constructed walls around two different cities, protective walls around two different cities in his uh, area of dominion and uh, the geographic area he reigned. Uh, he also was the founder of the city of Tiberias, so he did some some good things. Uh, however, his character was deeply flawed because this man was desperate to retain power and pleasure, and he would take the path of least resistance in order to get these things. And so what I want to do is unpack from our passage a couple of these deep, deep-seated character flaws we see here that kind of fit with the postmodern worldview, um, and where that ultimately led for Herod. So the first flaw that we see here is his desire. He has desires. He desires something that would be pleasurable, that is unmoored from, unhinged from anything that would be considered objective truth. Let me just say this, desire isn't wrong. God has given us desires God delights when we take pleasure in various things that we rightfully take pleasure in, okay? So desire isn't wrong, but desire outside of God's design leads to disaster. And that's what was going on here with Herod. So what happened, and I'm speaking of Herodias here, this unlawful marriage that he entered into, is he goes on a trip to Rome. This we don't read about in the Bible. He goes on a trip to Rome to visit his brother Philip. Now, Philip wasn't one of the four whom Herod the Great's kingdom was divided amongst, so he didn't actually have any power or territory he was reigning over. So he's just going to visit his brother in Rome, who happens to live there. And he falls in love with his wife Herodias. And supposedly she, him, although as his story and their story unfolds, it seems rather coincidental that it may have been more for her about the power that she could ultimately have by marrying one of the Herods that actually had a a territory that he ruled over versus her current husband. So he falls in love with her, she supposedly him. They both divorce their current spouses. And this is the illicit lust on Herod's part and the unlawful marriage, marrying his brother's wife that John calls out here in this passage. And I'm I'm only going to say this much more about this particular sin at this point, but I think this is important. God's design for marriage calls for a high commitment, even when it comes at a cost to personal desire. But it doesn't seem that Herod stopped to consider this, and he just went ahead with what felt best at the time, to the destruction of his brother's family and eventually even his own. So the second flaw that we see here, though, and this is the one that's pervasive throughout this passage and probably primarily in view, is that Herod was a serial people pleaser. I mean, it's just all throughout here. If he had a moral compass at all, it seemed to just change according to whatever would please the people around him and in turn give him popularity and power. Okay? And so we see this in at least four different instances. Starting off with Herodias in verse 3, we're told that he threw John into prison. But he did so for Herodias' sake. Okay, And then in verse 5, we're told that he wanted to put John to death. But this was more Herodias' influence as we read about in Mark's gospel, chapter 6. There we're given a, a broader account, more details. And here's what we're told there. And Herodias... Had a grudge against him and wanted to put him, that is, John the Baptist, to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. We'll go back to that in a moment, another influence here in Herod's life. But listen to this, guys. When he heard him, John, presumably the words of rebuke that he was speaking to Herod. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Like, stop for a moment and think about that. There's a level of complexity to this man. He's not one-dimensional. This is very interesting, at least to me, or if nothing else, maybe it just reveals how God has placed eternity in the hearts of every man, as King Solomon wrote about in his book, Ecclesiastes. See, I think what we can draw as a conclusion from that, that Herod felt this mixture of both being perplexed, confrontation of John, this prophet, about his own sin, but also hearing him gladly, is that God has not left his broken world without a witness. Those things, that including his creation, we're not without excuse because we've seen what he's made with his hands, right? Our consciences, not that those can be fully trusted, but God has given them to us, and they can, our hearts can be pricked because God has given us consciences to recognize when we're doing wrong. They can also eventually be seared if we continue to do wrong. And then finally, and most importantly, his word which is oftentimes comes to us in the form of what is spoken, the prophetic. And here, perhaps, in this passage in Mark, what we're seeing is the intersection of God's voice through John and Herod's own conscience being pricked. And there's a part of Herod that knows that John is right, or he would not have heard him gladly. See, I think Herod senses in that moment that truth is actually meant to set you free, not cause bondage. I think what we're seeing and what Mark is cluing us into is that the spirit was moving in that moment in Herod's heart, and he had an opportunity there to repent. But let me circle back now, because our point here is we're talking about Herod, the serial people pleaser. He's already been swayed to some degree by Herodias to throw John into prison, but now we're told in Mark's gospel that he's swayed by John and his reputation not to actually kill him, right? Right? We're told he feared John, a righteous and holy man. Now, some of that may have been reverential. Undoubtedly, he saw something different in John, worthy of reverence. But some of this was superstitious, right? That Greek influence, religious influence, seeping back in here. Um, And it can be seen in the guilt and the paranoia that's expressed through verses 1 and 2 of our chapter, chapter 14 today, where we're told that Herod hears about the fame of Jesus... And he assumes it's who? That's, you can really answer that, just seeing if you're paying attention still. John the Baptist. He hears of Jesus' fame, and he assumes that it's John the Baptist back from the dead. Guys, what you're seeing here is that this man was filled with guilt. And he was on edge. And he was living... A superstitious life at this point in time this man's sin and his complicity in the sin of others namely Herodias would haunt him to his dying day that's what you're seeing here so there's Herodias which is influencing him there's John the Baptist which is influencing him but it continues in verse five where we're told but though he wanted to put him to death again probably more pressure from Herodias he feared who? Shout it out. The people. Now he's worried about the crowds, the masses. He fears a revolt from the people because that would threaten his power. So he makes a decision based upon appeasing the local masses, but it's not over. Then comes his birthday party celebration. And this illicit lust, this desire for pleasure outside of God's design and will is on display again as he takes pleasure in what was almost certainly a highly suggestive and a modest dance from Herodias' daughter. Now, understand here that Herodias almost certainly put her do- uh, daughter, who we know to be named Salome, up to this to begin with. She was perhaps 12 to 14 years old, could have been younger. It's actually a really sad picture of this young girl who was caught in the middle of the immorality of these two parental figures, her, her mom's deviousness and bloodthirst on the one hand and the perversion and lust of this quasi-father figure on the other. It's a really sad picture. But Herod sees her dancing, and he's so pleased that he rashly offers her anything, we're told in Mark's gospel, up to half the kingdom. The reason he had to stop there is because if he had said that she could have any more than that, then she would have a controlling share of his kingdom. She consults with her mom, which would have been the thing that would have been expected of a young girl to go to her parents for consultation, who's plotting this all along. She knows what she's doing here, and Salome comes back asking for John, John's head on a platter. Here's what I want you to hear, though. Herod could have said no. He he could have actually said no. There would have been provision in Jewish law at this point for him to break this oath that he had made, since it was far more unlawful to take a life unjustly, especially that of the prophet John. But because he didn't want to be embarrassed in front of his guests, he goes ahead with it. It leads to the death, the murder of an innocent man, one of the greatest to ever live. See, whatever the path of least resistance was for Herod, in order to get what he wanted the most, whether it was approval from others, whether it was power, whether it was pleasure, he went with it. Outwardly, this guy was post-modernity to a T. The only thing is, in Herod's day, most people knew that there was such a thing as objective truth. The Jewish religion believed that there was one God. Even the Greek philosophers were on a pursuit of real objective truth. In his case, he just chose to ignore it, whatever part of him knew better. Here's the scary thing about the worldview in our culture today, guys. There's a a belief that there is no objective truth. That is actually a firmly held conviction, that there is no thing as objective truth. So people feel truly justified in the choices that they make so long as it feels good and appears at face value not to be hurting anyone else. But the question that that begs is, how can you know if you're actually hurting someone else if you don't have an objective measure to begin with for what's right and for what's wrong? See, this worldview isn't freeing, it's terrifying. But here's the most important thing for you to understand. None of this resulted in lasting pleasure or fulfillment for Herod. Herod. That's what he was seeking, after all. On some level, that's what all of us are seeking. All humans are looking for life, place, and meaning, lasting pleasure and fulfillment. But slowly, but surely, it would all collapse for Herod because morally speaking, the path of least resistance only feels good in the moment and it always leads to death. It always leads to destruction in the long run. See, it's not living to be constantly fear and fear of a ghost that might be haunting you because you wrongfully took a man's life, as was the case with Herod. It's not living to be at the mercy of everyone's opinion around you for your sense of well-being, which was the case for Herod. It may seem at face value like he had it all, but this guy was in bondage. And he needed the truth of the kingdom of life that John was trying to speak to him in order to be set free. Let's just stop, though, for a moment and talk about how the gospel addresses these things. Because without negating the seriousness of our sin, the gospel tells us that we no longer need to be haunted by our sin and our bad choices. That there is forgiveness in Christ. That God does make all things new. That somehow he can even take our wrongs and redeem them for his purposes. Because Jesus took our guilt and shame upon himself on the cross. And the gospel gives us actual, solid truth, objective truth to stand on, truth that can be known. The gospel also gives us a God who loves us so much so that even when you need to stand on that truth against the popular opinion of those around you, you may have lost acceptance with everyone else, but you have it from the cosmic being who created all these people to begin with whom you're seeking acceptance from. See, the gospel is so important for us to think through when it comes to the temptations of the worldviews we're surrounded by right now today because it addresses all of these things. It gives us a better way. Unfortunately, Herod never seems to have repented. We have no evidence of it. In fact, there's this sobering scene that comes later on. We read about in Luke's gospel where he reappears on the scene with an opportunity to deal rightly with an injustice that's in front of him. Do you remember what that was? After Pilate was done questioning Jesus, he sends him to Herod. Herod is now on trial, having been falsely accused. Uh, Excuse me, Jesus is now on trial, having been falsely accused, and Herod has a chance to acquit him, to recognize that he has done no wrong. And what does he do? He asks Jesus to perform a miracle for him. He wants to be entertained. And the sobering part is that when he starts to ask Jesus some questions, what does Jesus do in return? Silence. Because he knew what was in Herod's heart. It was a strong indictment of what was going on in his heart. Instead of getting softer through all these experiences he'd had, it had actually gotten harder. Because the faithless will always take the path of least resistance, which brings death. And we don't read about these next couple things in the Bible, but I think it's worth noting that in historical sources we have outside the Bible, we find out that the consequences for Herod's sin keep on mounting. First of all, Herod's first measure, uh, marriage had been a political one uh, to the daughter of the king of the Nabataeans. And when he had dissolved and divorced her later on, that that king was so angry with Herod that he went to war with him, and he actually soundly defeated him. And were it not for Rome coming in to rescue Herod, it would have been far worse. Then in 39 AD, the Roman emperor at the time, Caligula, granted some uh, newly available territories, uh, to another member of Herod's family, this one being Herod Agrippa, and granted him the title of king along with it. And this is where Herodias kind of, in her influence, enters back onto the scene. She was so envious because she wanted to be a queen herself. When it, you, when it talks about Herod being a king in our passage, that's irony. He was not known as a king. He did not have that title. I think it says, and the king or King Herod was sorry. Sorry. There's actually intentional irony there to say he was acting anything like a king, anything but like a king, okay? So she wanted this title as queen, and so she puts all this pressure on Herod to contest this decision made by the emperor, and despite his better judgment, because the annals of history tell us he did not want to go, push came to shove, he ends up going to Rome in hopes of having an audience with the emperor. Herod Agrippa gets wind of it. He sends messengers ahead of Herod Antipas, And he falsely acclaims that Antipas was on his way to Rome to revolt. So Caligula gets wind of this and never gives Antipas a hearing. And he actually strips his rulership and his territory from him, gives it to Agrippa, and banishes he and Herodias to Gaul for the rest of their life till they die. It's ironic ironic, but perhaps fitting that in the end, when he had lost it all, the only thing that he still had was the woman whom he'd wrongly coveted and been unlawfully married to to begin with. This is where the path of least resistance will lead you. But worse than all that was the silence of Jesus in that moment before Herod. And the implication was huge. It was as if Jesus was saying in that silence what he said in Mark eight thirty six: what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? On the other hand, the faithful believer will live by the truth which brings life, which is embodied by the prophet John the Baptist that we see here in this passage. John shows us what a life looks like that's anchored in truth. Now back in chapter 11, which we already went through, we learned that John was imprisoned. Now we learn why, because he believed that there was such a thing as truth. He believed that the truth was good for people. More importantly, he believed that there was a person who embodied that truth who was worth dying for. Some of the characteristics we see in John on display here and elsewhere is that he's willing to confront immorality when he sees it. He's willing to speak unpopular truth to a power holder, no less. he knew there was consequences at stake here. And in so doing, he sacrifices worldly rewards, things like comfort and approval and security, the things that Herod was seeking after. And he also is seen seeking the good of others and not his own gain. Those are the characteristics of someone who's truly bought into their being objective truth and knowing the source of that truth. Listen, we're only given one line here from John in this passage. And it could seem rather condemning. But his boldness here should not be taken merely as condemnation, but a desire for restoration. Fiery as John may have been, his primary objective was to call people to repentance so that they could experience the kingdom life that he was preaching and teaching about. You see, multiple people can say the same thing, even something that's true, but for very different reasons. All right, some people can be bold in speaking what is true because it elevates themselves above others. That's Pharisaism. Some people can be bold in speaking what is true because of a desired identity that they have as a zealot or um, as a radical, which really at the end of the day is just living for the approval of others. But some people can be bold in speaking what is true because they genuinely desire to honor God and the good of others. And I believe that was true of John. John was an eccentric guy, no doubt. And he could have easily been mistaken by us even, as we read scripture, as being one of those who pronounces judgment on others without a heart for redemption. But John was a true prophet of God, identified as such by Jesus himself. And so his desire would have been no less than God's for the people around him. Now in scripture, we see some pretty scathing rebukes on God's part towards sin, but they are always rooted in love and they're always rooted in desiring the good for people. So take Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 to 32, for example. Here's what God says to his people, and by extension to you and I. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Hear this part, guys. This is God's heart on display here. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. If that's God's heart, then it's also the heart of those who are truly serving God. See, John would have loved nothing more than to see God's radical grace received by this power-hungry, people-pleasing, unfaithful ruler in Israel and to see Herod go from death to life. But he also had the people of Israel in mind, undoubtedly, as well. He knew the potential ripple effect that the immorality of those in positions of power can have on those that that rule over them. See, people will begin to see and accept as normal that which they see accepted by those who are in power over them. John knew that confronting Herod's sin was not just a potential tool that God might use in his own redemption, but also for the good of Israel. It's also worth noting to go back to the fact John was human like you and I again. He wasn't perfect. He didn't see this situation perfectly, and yet God still used him graciously in a mighty way. See, this is the guy who back in chapter 11 became so disillusioned with Jesus while he was sitting in prison that he sends his disciples to go and to ask Jesus, Are you really the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for? Because you see, like many in Israel, John had this expectation that the kingdom of God was going to be ushered into this world through a political takeover by the Messiah. When instead, Jesus' life and ministry demonstrated quite the opposite. This counterintuitive notion that God would bring life through radical, self-sacrificial death. Still, John may have been off in his assessment of how Jesus would bring about redemption, but he understood who Jesus was. He understood that he was a true king, unlike Herod. He understood that he was a king worth giving his everything for. And he understood he was a king whose approval was far more important than any other earthly king who had ever reigned. And he was willing to die for this king. Because on some level, he did understand the mystery that it's only in dying that we're going to find true life. This is something that the saints throughout history have understood as we read about in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, which tells us, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise to a better life. See, John knew that chasing comfort and security and approval at the cost of truth was not really living at all, but it was just being in bondage to sin and to this world. He also knew that the only one who has the authority to grant true life is Jesus, which is why he understood he was worth dying for. See, I think this passage today leaves us with a couple of questions to consider, so I'm going to leave them with you. We, we've done this before at Terra Nova, some contemplative questions, some homework for you guys to take with you into the week. And the first question is this. What is it that you find yourself living for? What do the use of your time, your talents, and your possessions reflect about that which you value the most? What do you find yourself living for, and is it worth dying for? Because if the primary thing that we find ourselves living for isn't worth dying for, then we're living for the wrong thing. John the Baptist may have died a horrible, unjust death, but it was his faithfulness to the truth, and more precisely his faith in the one who is the source of all truth, that would bring him life everlasting. The other question has to do with what we see here at the very end of the passage. It's a detail that probably more than anything else struck me. I haven't spent a lot of time on it today. It could be easily overlooked, but it's worth pointing out the legacy of John's life that we see here on display in verse 12. After Jesus' disciples, or John's disciples rather, came and took his body and buried it. By the way, that's a sign of great respect and honor because they would have done that at the risk of their lives. Who do they go to? They go to Jesus. Jesus. See, John's life was a raging success because the one who came to prepare a way for Jesus, the one who said that I must decrease so that he can increase, had accomplished his mission. For sure, John's disciples loved him. He was beloved by his followers. But at the end of the day, his greatest desire was that his life would direct people to Jesus, which it did. So the other question that we have to consider before ourselves this morning is, if people had to look at your life to find a source of hope for their own, where would they turn? If they had to look at your life as what dominated it in terms of your source of hope, and that source of hope then became their own, where would they turn? What would they go to? Who would they go to? You see, we don't want to wait until we get to the end of our life to answer these questions. I certainly don't think John the Baptist did. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that the only way that we will be willing to lay down our life on a daily basis or ultimately for Jesus is if we decisively answer these questions ahead of time. I think that's what it means to count the cost of following after Jesus. So take some time this week to ask and try to answer these questions for yourselves. And know that God is gracious towards those who approach him with a humble heart. We all start on the same footing, sinners in need of a savior. God's just looking for simple faith that he can be trusted and that he is the source of all truth and the author of life. Would you pray with me as we close? Our Father in heaven, we confess those things as true even if we're not sure if we fully believe them. We confess that you are the one true king. We confess that you are the author of life. We confess that you are the source of all truth. Help us not to be deceived by the allures and the empty promises of sin. Help us to desire your approval above all others. And grant us the courage, God, to walk in obedience even where it conflicts with the prevailing winds of the beliefs of our culture and world around us. God, may our lives in the end and especially our legacies be that others turn to you because of the hope that they see in us for Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.